بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله we've started now on the story of Sayyiduna Musa and Khidr alayhim as-salam and as I was preparing for this class, I realized that our discussion about this story is going to take three sessions. So the first session in our previous class was looking at the background to the story and trying to reconstruct that part all the way to the journey and meeting of Sayyiduna Khidr. The second part details who Khidr is and his nature. And the third part is the actual lesson of the story, the things that were experienced by Musa, what he witnessed. So I want to recap just a little bit and reconstruct the story so that we get to where we left off. So we mentioned in the previous class that the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ in Sahih al-Bukhari gives us a more detailed picture of the story about Musa and Khidr. And it's from the hadith of Ubay ibn Ka'ab radiallahu anhu. And in that hadith, the Prophet ﷺ says that Musa السلام, was delivering a khutbah, a sermon, or just talking with Bani Israel. And some people asked him, who has been endowed with the most knowledge? Musa السلام, was not aware of anyone else more knowledgeable than him. So he said, I am. He didn't say out of blameworthy pride. It was, a, for what he felt, a statement of fact. He said, I am. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him the alwah, the tablets. He revealed the, the Torah to him directly. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala favored him with many miracles and signs. But when he said, I am, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to teach him a lesson and increase him in knowledge because, as we said, the prophets have a higher standard of adab than ordinary people. So even if what he said wasn't an offense, there's a higher level of adab that Allah wished to instill in him. And that's where we get to this story. Allah revealed to Prophet Musa السلام, that there is in fact someone else who has knowledge that Musa السلام, doesn't have. And this servant, Abdan min ibadina, a servant from our servants, he is at the meeting point or the junction between the two bodies of water. So this doesn't mean that Khidr necessarily has a higher maqam than Musa. It just means that Allah favored him with some things that he did not favor Musa with. And this goes back to a principle that we might have talked about before, maybe in the Aqidah class. And that principle is المزية لا تقتضي الأفضلية that 
if a person has a unique quality or gift given to them, it doesn't imply that they're superior to others in every way. A good example for this is in the hadith describing Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu. The hadith famously says that when Umar takes a path, the shaitan takes a different path. That's a unique gift given to, to Sayyidina Umar. That's his maziyah. But that maziyah, that quality of him striking such fear into shaitan that shaitan avoids him, that doesn't imply that he's superior to everyone on every level. Because we have a hadith where the Prophet ﷺ encounters shaitan and even fights shaitan. So the question is, why is shaitan fleeing, taking another road, from the, uh, another road different from Umar? Yet we don't see that with the Prophet ﷺ. The, the answer is, the unique thing given to one person doesn't imply they're superior to others in every respect. So Khidr is given certain things. It doesn't imply that he's superior. Yet Allah Ta'ala told him, told Musa to go take a journey, a difficult journey, and seek out this individual. So Musa had this intense desire to learn more. And he asked Allah Ta'ala, how can I meet him? How can I find him? And Allah Ta'ala told him to cook a fish, put it in a basket, and head towards the Multaqa al-Bahrain, this meeting point between the two bodies of water. And the place where you lose the fish is the place where you're going to find Khidr. So Musa alayhi salam sets out with his servant or this young man, Yusha bin Noon, and they journey together going to this Majma' al-Bahrain. It was a difficult journey. And this is mentioned in the Qur'an from the words of Musa alayhi salam. He says, indeed we have found in this journey of ours, Nasab. Nasab is uh, fatigue and something that is very tiresome, very tiring. So he and Yusha' they go out, they rest by this large rock, and Musa السلام, falls asleep. Yusha was awake, and as we mentioned in the last class, the fish slipped out of the basket, got into the water, and basically, in a miraculous way, a tunnel type of thing was formed in the water containing the fish. So it didn't get away. The next day, Musa السلام, asks him, bring our meal. Much fatigue has come to us in this journey. And by this time, Yusha السلام, and Musa had already walked a good amount of a good distance. And Yusha السلام, remembers that he forgot about this fish jumping out of the basket. So he remembered and he told Musa السلام, so what did they have to do? They had to go back and retrace their steps. They retraced their steps until they got back to this meeting point. And Musa السلام, realized that because the fish was lost at that place, well, that's the place where we're going to meet him because Allah revealed to him 
that he'll meet the servant at the place where he loses the fish. So he goes back, and Allah Ta'ala says, فَوَجَدَا عَبْدًا مِنْ عِبَادِنَا آتَيْنَاهُ رَحْمَةً مِنْ عِنْدِنَا وَعَلَّمْنَاهُ مِنْ لَدُنَّا عِلْمًا Then they came upon a servant of ours, whom we blessed with mercy from us, and had taught him knowledge from our own. So this individual, this Abd, is Khidr alayhi salam. And according to the soundest view that mentioned by Al-Imam Al-Nawawi in Tahdeeb Al-Asma'i Wal-Lughat, the name of Khidr is Balya bin Malkan Yu'su. So Khidr was not his formal name, it wasn't his proper name, it was a nickname. And he was given this name, Khidr, or the green one, because wherever he would sit, if the area was dry and barren, it would turn green. And vegetation would grow wherever he would sit. And this was a miracle that Allah Ta'ala gave to Sayyidina Khidr alayhi salam. Now, here Allah Ta'ala says that he gave mercy to this individual. We gave him mercy from us and taught him directly some knowledge. So we're going to get to this in its meaning uh, as we pick up where we left off. So Musa alayhi salam, after meeting Khidr, he says to him, قَالَ لَهُ مُوسَى هَلْ أَتَّبِعُكَ عَلَىٰ أَن تُعَلِّمَنِ مِمَّا عُلِّمْتَ رُشْدًا May I follow you? so that you may teach me some of the guidance you were taught. So this means that he came to learn, and that was the point of the story. That's where we left off. Yes? Are you going to do in the That's the whole class. That's the whole class. That's the reason why it has to be three sessions. Yeah, because the whole class goes to that. Before we can get into the story, we have to talk a bit about Khidr, who he is. So that's where we are. We were going to talk about now two major issues that are discussed in the various books of tafsir. Some speak about them at length, some don't really speak about them that much. And these are two important questions. Question number one Was Khidr a Nabi, a prophet? Or was he a wali, a saintly person, but not a prophet? It's either or. It's either or. There's no third alternative here. That's the first question. Was he a prophet or was he a wali? The second question is, did he die or is he still alive? So these are two questions. Within each question, there are two possibilities which means that we have four possibilities in total. So he's either a prophet or a wali. He's either alive or, a de or, or dead. So he could be a prophet who died or a prophet still alive, or a wali who died or a wali who's still alive. So four possibilities here. We're going to address the, the first question. Was he a prophet? or a wali. 
Now some of the ulama of tafsir drawing from different reports say that Khidr was actually the grandfather, one of the grandfathers of Musa alayhi salam. This is one view. Others said that Khidr was one of the generals in the army of Dhul Qarnayn. And that Dhul Qarnayn, if you accept that, one of the views also is that in the army of Dhul Qarnayn as a general, when they were journeying, they discovered this spring called Ainul Hayat, right? The spring of, of it, not eternal life, but the spring of life. And he drank from that, and hence his very long age. That's one view. Now, was he a prophet, a nabi, or was he a wali? Imam Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, whom you should all be familiar with, one of the greatest scholars of hadith and the comment, commentator on Sahih al-Bukhari, he, along with Imam al-Nawawi, another one of the greatest of our scholars, both of them say that the majority position, the majority position of scholars is that Khidr was or is a prophet. They say he's a Nabi. And to be honest, if you accept that he's a prophet, it actually solves a lot of problems in how you understand the story. If he's not, then it actually opens up many other questions about what transpired. So they say the majority position is that he was a prophet. Now, where did they get that from? How do they know? Is there a verse of the Qur'an or a hadith which says that Khidr was a Nabi? No. There's no direct verse or direct hadith which explicitly says that he was a Nabi. So where did they get that from? They get it from the story. But the proofs are indirect. And they also have certain rational proofs or proofs that they argue uh, make rational sense. So for example, they'll say in the verse Allah Ta'ala says, أَتَيْنَاهُ رَحْمَةً مِنْ عِنْدِنَا We gave him rahma from us. They say that the rahma here refers to nubuwa. They say that the rahma, the mercy here, refers to nubuwa. Is that clear cut or is that a little ambiguous? It's a little ambiguous because you've all received rahma. We all receive rahma every single day. But we're not prophets. So rahma is a very general term. So they're taking a general term and applying it to a specific meaning. And one of the reasons they do that is because elsewhere in the Qur'an, Allah refers to nubuwa as rahmah. أَهُمْ يَقْسِمُونَ رَحْمَةَ رَبِّي Do they divide up and apportion the mercy of my Lord or your Lord? That refers to nubuwa, right? So that's one proof. Another proof they use is the same verse. وَعَلَّنَّاهُ مِنْ لَدُنَّا عِلْمًا And we taught him knowledge from us. We taught him knowledge from us. So this part of the verse negates Khidr learning from a third party, from a teacher, right? And the prophets of Allah do not receive revelation they don't, they don't get taught by other human beings. They're not a student under a teacher. Uh, 
they may receive wahi through the wasita, the means of Jibreel alayhi salam. But in, in other cases, the wahi is directly from Allah Ta'ala. And this verse says, we taught him knowledge directly from us. Min ladunna, from us directly. So they say that this indicates that what he was receiving was wahi, revelation. Imam Razi says this is a very weak argument. And it is. Another argument they use is in the story itself. After Khidr does those three things with the boat, with the boy, and with the wall, after he says this is the parting of ways between me and you, and I will now explain to you the interpretation of what I did, he explained his reasonings, and then at the end of that, what did he say? He says, وَمَا فَعَلْتُهُ عَنْ أَمْرِي I didn't do that of my own accord. So it's like he's saying it wasn't my own idea to do this. That indicates that it came from another source. They argue that he did it because of revelation he received, divine commands from Allah telling him to do these things. So Musa is objecting to these actions. Outwardly, they appear evil. They appear bad based on the standards of the Sharia of Musa. And Khidr is telling him, the same authority that revealed those laws to you gave the command for me to do this. It, that would make sense if it's wahi and he's a prophet. And that's one of the arguments. We gave him rahmah. We gave him rahmah. So they say rahmah here uh, refers to prophethood, nubuwa. Yeah. Uh, they also say that, and this is not a direct argument, it's kind of a rational argument. They say, how can he teach Musa السلام, anything unless he too is a prophet? You know? How can. Uh, an ordinary human being who's not a prophet be teaching a prophet who's going to be superior to them because prophets are superior to those who are not prophets. So how can the inferior be teaching the superior? That's one argument. Another argument is that Musa السلام, asked to follow him. He asks him permission to follow him. So they say, how can a prophet follow someone who's not a prophet? So that's not a, a textual argument from an ayah or hadith. It's more of a rational argument. How can, how can that be? So that's the argument of those. These are the arguments, the main ones, of those who say that Khidr salam, was a Nabi and not a Wadi. And of course, others said that he was a Wadi and not a prophet. And they respond to these arguments and they have their own interpretations. They say Rahma can refer to so many things. Rahma, even in this story, when Allah says He gave Khidr Rahma, it can refer to food, shelter, knowledge, this, that, the other, right? So generally, you can't use a general term like Rahma to prove something that's specific. So you can't use the am to prove something khas, right? 
the Nubuwa is very particular. Rahmah is very general because it encompasses everything. How can you use the general to prove the specific here? It doesn't work. That's the argument of those who say he's a wali. Likewise, when Allah Ta'ala says, ilma," We've taught him directly from us. What the scholars call al-ilmu or divinely vouchsafed knowledge, knowledge that comes directly from Allah Ta'ala, that can be through inspiration, right? We affirm that it's possible for human beings to receive inspiration, kashf and ilham and these things. These are clearly established in the hadith reports of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He said if uh, in the previous nations, there were people who were muhaddathun, muhaddathun, not muhaddithun, the muhaddithun, the hadith scholars. Muhaddathun means people who receive, uh, you could say, discourse, or they receive inspiration. And if there is to be one from my ummah, it would be Umar bin Khattab radiallahu anhu. So that affirms uh, inspiration that's not for prophets. Right? And we have so many examples of kashf and ilham from the time of the Sahaba and the Tabi'un and afterwards. It's very clear. So they would say that what Khidr is given by Allah Ta'ala, it's not wahi. It is inspiration, kashf and so on. And these things can be given to people who are not anbiya. So the verse wouldn't be a proof that he's a prophet at the most it will be a proof that he's receiving inspiration which if it's for a prophet that's wahi if it's for someone who's not a prophet it's ilham or kashf and so on now the issue is here and this is where some of the complexity comes from a person's inspiration cannot override sharia right so because it could be mistaken right like let's say you have, you know, you have inspiration. You have a, it's a kind of spark of, of certainty that's in your heart. You come to this certainty out of nowhere that so-and-so has done something. Let's say they stole someone's money. Can you act on that inspiration and go and beat them up or something? You can't. It can't override sharia. And Sharia tells us that in cases of theft, there is due process. There's ways of establishing that. So we're going to come to that discussion. If we say he's a wadi, like how does that work? If he's receiving inspiration, how can he do things that seemingly override the Sharia of Musa? We'll get to that. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a difference between the miracles given to prophets. We call those mu'jizat. And then the miracles given to awliya and ordinary believers, we call those karamat. And we talked about that in the aqidah class, the different categories. But, yeah. Yes, yeah, a broad term, right? Right. You have uh, you have a bite to eat and and water to drink. You've received rahmah from Allah. 
So you can't say that rahmah uh, means nubuwa explicitly. It, I mean, it could be a possible interpretation, but it's very ambiguous here. Um, now, the third argument, وَمَا فَعَلْتُهُ عَنْ أَمْرِي He says, after explaining what he did, I didn't do it of my own accord. Those who say he's a wali say, of course, because it was through keshf and ilham. That was cast into his heart by Allah. He's not a prophet, but he was inspired. Right? And as far as saying, how can the inferior teach the superior? Well, who told Musa to go to this individual? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's not legislative. Right? He's not legislating anything and He's not overriding the sharia of Musa. So it's, he's just giving what Allah gave him. He's teaching what Allah taught him. Yeah. I'm just remembering that Allah inhamed from Musa mother also. And how hard to put the child in the middle of that also. Yeah. Yeah. And the verse actually uses the word wahi. Yeah. Right? But this is a, the, the wahi that would mean in ilham, inspiration, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in that case, there's a slight difference in that deferring to his expertise itself is a kind of legislation for seeking out people with experience because the Prophet is modeling how the leaders have to be with their people and not just doing unilateral decisions, but also taking into account the expertise of different people, different stakeholders. Yeah, but I, I see your point. Um, the last one, you know, Musa asked to follow him. So how can a prophet follow one who's not a prophet? Those who say that Khidr is a wali say that the following here is keeping his company and observing to learn, not following him by discarding the sharia that Allah gave him and taking whatever Khidr is doing. That wasn't a part of it. So he's not really following him in the sense of discarding what he has in favor of what Khidr has. It's keeping company with him and observing in order to learn. So following here is not as literal as what some may imagine it to be. So which is the correct view? Is he a prophet or a wali? Allahu A'lam. Really, you can't say. It's all speculative. And though the majority say a prophet, uh, the arguments in favor of that are not so airtight and clear-cut that you must say the other view is necessarily false, right? The, both sides have strong arguments. And at the end of the day, if a person says he is a wali or a nabi, it has no bearing on their practice of Islam in their day-to-day -day life. You say he's a Nabi, you, you say he's a what? It doesn't matter, because we respect him, right?
So that's the first question. Is he a wali or is he a nabi? The second question is probably a bit more <laughs> or a lot more controversial. And that is about uh, whether Khidr is alive or dead. Now I'll ask you, uh, how many of you grew up hearing that Khidr is alive? Any of you? It's, it's pretty common. They say Khidr is this figure. He's not immortal because everyone dies. But he has been living for a very, very, very long time. And he's still alive. And he still interacts with people in very mysterious ways. He's almost like this mythological figure. We don't say he's a mythological figure, but that's how he's perceived. You know, there's lots of stories about a mysterious person just showing up in some random place, looks very different, seems very out of the ordinary, appears, says something really wise, and then he vanishes, he's gone. And then people realize that was Khidr, maybe through a dream or he says it. You have lots of stories like this. So it goes back to this question about whether he's alive or dead. This is a very detailed issue. And I want to begin with a quote from Al-Imam al-Nawawi. When you hear names like Imam al-Nawawi, Imam ibn Hajar, know that these are heavyweight names. It, it gives a lot of credibility to whatever view is being mentioned. Because these are some of the greatest scholars in the history of Islam. And we go to Imam al-Nawawi's commentary on Sahih Muslim, and he says, the majority of scholars, the majority, hold that he is alive. And this is agreed upon between them and the people of righteousness and knowledge of Allah Ta'ala. The narratives regarding people witnessing him, meeting him, taking knowledge from him, asking him questions and receiving answers from him, and his presence in noble and good situations is more than can be enumerated and more famous than can be concealed. So basically, he says that the majority of scholars say that he is actually alive. Imam al-Nawi, he also gives many references for this and many statements from ulama who affirm that Khidr is alive. We go to another scholar, a scholar by the name of Al-Imam Ibn al-Salah. Ibn al-Salah was a famous hadith scholar and Shafi'i jurist, also a heavyweight in Islamic knowledge. Imam Ibn al-Salah was asked about this question, and he said, he is alive according to the majority of scholars, and the righteous and the common people are with them in this. Meaning this is, it's basically common knowledge among the majority of ulama and even ordinary people that he is still alive. And there are other scholars who have this view. Besides al-Imam al-Nawi and Imam Ibn al-Salah, you have Imam Ibn Ata'illah al-Sakandari. You have Imam Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, whom we mentioned earlier. We have Imam Abu Ja'far al-Tahawi, Imam Jalal al-Din al-Suyuti. We have uh, Mujaddid al-Alfithani, Sheikh Ahmed al-Sirhindi. 
We have even narrations from Ibn Kathir in his Al-Bidai wa Nihaya, which seems to support that view as well. And Ibn Kathir cites some of these narrations. It doesn't always mean that he agrees, but he cites them. For example, he cites that, and this is apparently from him, there's an agreement among the majority of scholars that Khidr is alive. And there are many reports and witnesses who have reported accounts that this is the case. And he also cites the narration about Dhulqarnain discovering this body of water and that Khidr drank from this water and Khidr therefore has been living for a very long time. Now this is not immortality, right? There are people who oppose this view, obviously. There are scholars too, who say that no, he died, right? Now some of those scholars who said that Khidr died, they have different evidence for this position. Some of the evidence, it seems, it, it seems like it makes sense on the surface, but when you dig deeper, it doesn't really provide a clear-cut proof. For example, some scholars like Ibn Jawzi, he said Khidr is dead. And his proof is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, we have not granted any man before you khuld. We have not granted eternality khuld for any man before you. So Allah is saying in this verse that no man, no human being has been granted immortality. But does that prove that Khidr is dead? It doesn't say anything about Khidr, number one. And number two, no one's saying that Khidr is immortal. In order to use this verse, you'd have to use it against those who say that Khidr is immortal. No one who says that Khidr is alive still says that he won't die. In fact, as you'll see, those who believe that he is still alive have a very clear idea about when he's going to die and at whose hands he's going to die, as we'll see. So another hadith, they say, uh, during the battle of Badr, the Prophet ﷺ said in the dua, Oh Allah, if uh, we're wiped out in this battle after today, then no one on the earth will worship you. They say, well, if Khidr was alive, where was he, right? Uh, that would mean if they were to die and Khidr still alive, there would still be a person worshiping him. That's also not airtight because were there other people on the earth who were worshiping Allah Ta'ala? There was Uwais al-Qarni. Uwais al-Qarni was in the Yemen. He couldn't come to Medina because he was serving his mother. He was a believer. He just hadn't formally entered Islam at the hands of the Prophet So that hadith is general, but the meaning is more specific than people take it. So it's not really a proof. So that's the majority view. And the scholars who say that Khidr is still alive, they differed about uh, when he's going to die. Some say that he will, be, he, will, he will die after the Qur'an is removed from the Mus'haf, one of the great signs of the Day of Judgment. Others say that he's going to die 
at the end of time without specifying when. And others said that he's going to die at the hands of the Dajjal. And there's a hadith in Sahih Muslim which seems to affirm this. So we have the hadith, the very long hadith of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiallahu anhu in Sahih Muslim where the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that the Dajjal will come and it will be forbidden for him to pass through the gates of Medina. And he'll be in some barren salt marsh area outside of Medina on the outskirts. And on that day, as the Dajjal is standing on the outskirts of Medina, outside of it, the hadith says, on that day, the best man or one of the best of men will come up to him and say, I testify that you are the same Dajjal given to us by Rasulullah And the Dajjal will say to the people, if I kill this man and bring him back to life again, will you doubt my claim? And the people said no. So the Dajjal will kill that man and bring him back to life. And that man will say, now I know your reality even better than before. And the Dajjal will say, I want to kill him, but I cannot. So you see a little ambiguity here. Like he's killed, but he's not ultimately killed. So when does he die? It doesn't really answer the question when he dies. But many of the ulama say that this person will be Khadr alayhi salam. And he will be killed by the Dajjal in this fashion. And he'll be split in two. And this is one interpretation, right? And if you say he's alive, obviously he's not. I mean, there's, a, there's, there's still these possibilities. If he's a prophet, is he still alive? If he's a prophet and still alive, does he have any legislative capacity? No. He would have to be following the sharia of the Prophet If you say he is a wali and alive, he's still following the sharia of the Prophet So that means that even if he's alive and even if someone has an encounter with him, I mean, it, it kind of it brings more questions than it answers. Like, how do you know that that's him? There has to be some clarity. It doesn't mean that this person can just bring something like, oh, you know, do this, do that, or change this or change that. It, it doesn't work like that. And it's not something people should be seeking out and thinking like, oh, is that person Khidr or is that person? That's not how it works. But that's a view. And one of the lessons you get from this is if he's alive, you see the great power of elders, right? The Prophet Sallallahu says, لَيْسَ مِنَّا مَنْ لَمْ يُوَقِّرْ كَبِيرَنَا وَيَرْحَمْ صَغِيرَنَا وَيَعْلَمْ لِعُلِمَائِنَا حَقَّهُمْ That he's not from us who doesn't respect our elders, show mercy to our young, and acknowledge the right of our scholars. So despite his advanced age, if he's there and confronts the Dajjal, you see that he plays a very pivotal role at the end of time. And even though he's an elder, the oldest human being, we must say. Is he alive? Is he dead? Allah Ta'ala knows best, right? The majority affirm that he is alive. And at any rate, he has no legislative capacity. And 
any prophet who is alive is submitted to the sharia of Rasulullah sallallahu So let's say he's a prophet. Are there any other prophets that are going to be alive in, on the earth after the Prophet sallallahu Are there any other prophets who, not to not new prophets, I just mean, pre, are there any previous prophets who will be on earth? Prophet Isa alayhi salam. So let's say he's a prophet and let's say he's still alive. There's no problem for us theologically because we also, because everyone believes that Prophet Isa returns and he's physically alive on the earth. Does he come with a sharia other than the sharia of Islam? No. He is upholding the sharia of Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The Mahdi leads the prayer, right? So even if you say he's a prophet and he has this particular role, doesn't negate the sharia of the Prophet sallallahu reigning over him. So, yeah, at the end of the day, we don't know. And if you say he's a wali, it opens the door for certain questions about what he did and how he got that knowledge. If he was a prophet, then we simply say it was wahi. And he's not in the jurisdiction of Prophet Musa alayhi salam. So you'd say he has a different sharia, and he's not in the jurisdiction of Musa alayhi salam because there were different prophets sent to different nations and they had different laws but with the same beliefs. And Prophet Musa alayhi salam is sent to Bani Israel and he journeyed to this place and he's not sent as a prophet to those people. Like that's one way you could interpret it. Now if he's a prophet, that's clear. If he's not a prophet, He's acting on a different sharia of a different prophet. We don't know all those details. You got a question? Uh, what's death for a prophet? Um, I, I thought death for a prophet is not as other humans experience. They in Barzakh are alive. Oh, yeah. So, uh, so everyone is alive in, everyone has consciousness in the Barzakh. Okay. That's true because we're questioning the grave. We have experiences in the grave. Some people have a greater degree of freedom in that realm than others. So when we all die, we are going from one realm of existence to another. We still have consciousness. In fact, we have a greater degree of consciousness in that next realm. So death isn't lights out for anyone. So if human beings all have consciousness going into that next realm, the prophets and messengers have an even greater degree of consciousness. And this is al-hayatul barzakhiyyah. That's affirmed for everyone, but for the prophets, they have a higher degree of cognition and awareness in that realm. So their deaths are different in that sense. Also in the sense that their bodies are not consumed by the earth. That's something, a unique gift Allah Ta'ala, the Prophet mentions that the, the earth uh, does not consume the bodies of the Prophets. So 
But in every other way, the angel of death does take the soul of the prophets like the angel of death takes the soul of other human beings. And we have the hadith of the angel of death appearing before Prophet Musa alayhi salam. Are you familiar with this hadith? What did Musa alayhi salam do? He didn't recognize him. So he punched him in the eye, knocked him in the eye. Uh, I heard one scholar say, you know, it's one of these, it's not a standard interpretation. It's more of a fanciful one. They said, he says, I think the reason why he did that is to teach the angel of death adab because he knows that later down the line he also has to take the soul of, of the, the prophets to come and eventually the soul of the Prophet So you can't come like this with this kind of adab. You have to come differently. Allahu Alam. So, so that tells you that they experience death. Um, so that's really it the, uh, whether he's a prophet or a wedi whether he's alive or he's dead this brings us back to the story and some of the questions we'll be exploring as we look at the events and the justifications yeah. uh, because there's numerous narrations about him being alive and Well, first of all, it's a rational possibility, you know, because he's not eternal. Everything that has a beginning has an end. And no human being is going to live forever. They have to all taste death, including Khidr. The question is, is his death going to come much later? Or is it something that occurs within the ordinary time frame of when human beings live and die? And are there other creatures that have lived for a very, very long time that are still alive? Can you think of any? I can think of one right now. من شر الوسواس الخنس قال أنظرني إلى يوم يبعثون Iblis said to Allah Ta'ala, give me respite until the last day. So Iblis is a jinn. It's a creature of Allah created by God created from fire. And this creation of Allah has a beginning, of course. And he asked Allah to give him reprieve until the day of judgment. So as a living being, he's still alive. We can even argue he's been alive longer than Khidr. Because Khidr is a human being and he's a descendant of Adam, alayhi salam. But Iblis comes even before Adam. So if it's possible for a jinn creature to live that long of course it's possible for a human being the thing is it goes against the the norm right we're not used to thinking of jinn as being creatures limited to 60 to 80 years we don't think of it like that they're not really creatures that we deal with on a daily basis we don't have patterns of observation but with human beings we see the average human being lives between 60 to 70 years that's the median age of the ummah so if you hear of a figure in ancient history and it's said that he's still alive, you can't help but wonder, well, why is he still alive? I, I, like you said, why is that even a question? Well, the, number one is the possibility. Number two, there are lots of narrations which indicate that he didn't die, right? And there's narrations of people having interactions with him. There are even some hadith 
right? But the hadith have different degrees of weakness. You can't use them as, uh, you can't use them with authority to prove the point, but they're there. So that lends some credence to the fact that this was an area of discussion, right? And it came to be observed that, you know, this person is still alive. People have had interactions with him. And at the end of the day, you know, Allah knows best. Is it possible to have an encounter with a very strange man that uh, is very pious and Allah has given this person many miracles? They walk into a place that turns green or if they sit on it, it turns green and they come in and out and disappear. It's possible, you know, it's all miracles. Allah can break the norms, the empirical norms for people as he wills. So there's nothing theologically problematic with affirming that as a possibility. Is it a factual thing? Well, if you believe that he was still alive, it's possible. If you believe that he's dead, then people wouldn't be having those interactions with him because he's dead. Um, there's an interesting story. Um, there's a great sheikh by the name of Sheikh Abdul Aziz al-Dabbag, rahimahullah. And he's a very, very big alim, arif billah, in Morocco. He passed away in like late 1700s. So in, there in Fez, you have this large cemetery right, out, right outside of the old city, Bab al-Futur. And customarily in Morocco, people visit the graveyards, they visit their deceased relatives to recite Qur'an there on Friday mornings. And there's a hadith to that effect. And uh, one day, I went there one Jumu'ah with the intention of uh, visiting some of the Salihin and just reciting Al-Fatiha there. And I was looking for the place where Sheikh Abdul Aziz al was buried. I couldn't find it. It's a massive graveyard. So I, I see this one place off at the horizon that looks like the picture of it that I had seen before I got there. So I'm walking, walking, walking until I get to this place and I realize this is not it. And I said, okay, well, who, who's buried here? And I see the little stone. It says, uh, Sheikh Ali Hirzihim. I said, okay, I'll read Al-Fatiha here and I'll just sit and I'll read my book and relax. So I sat there and I pulled out a book. What book did I bring? I brought the book called Ibriz, which is basically a book written by Shaykh Ahmad bin Mubarak al-Lamti, where he accounts uh, all of the different stories and sayings and experiences he had with his teacher, Shaykh Abdulaziz al-Dabbagh. So the Ibriz is associated with Shaykh Abdulaziz al-Dabbagh. So I'm sitting there. My intention was to visit, read Al-Fatiha, and then just read from the book. But I'm at the, on the other side of the cemetery, and I'm reading this book, and then I open to the first chapter, the first or second page in the first chapter, and my eyes land on the opening paragraph, where Sheikh Abdulaziz al-Dabbagh tells the story about how he was one day uh, visiting this grave of Sheikh Ali Hirzihim, which is exactly where I was. And that as he was there uh, with some people, they were just spending time, and then uh, he met this man 
who came to him and told him uh, to go to read this dua a whole bunch of times so Allah may purify your heart like a salat ala nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam and then he asked the man who are you and he says i'm khidr so i read the story and i'm i'm at the place where sheikh ali hirzihim is buried i'm like okay interesting story interesting coincidence you know reading the story that took place in the exact place i was standing but you know i've never seen anyone named khidr I don't deny that uh, that's a possibility. And I also am wary of anyone who makes wild claims about meeting people like that. You know, it's, it's, you know, you can do two things at once. You can believe it's a possibility while also not entertaining anyone and everyone who says, oh, I met this person, I met Khadr and he gave me this and gave me that. You know, for some people, yeah. I would, give, I would have taslim, I would say, okay. For others, I would say, I don't see from your conduct, your way of being, that you're the kind of person he would go to. But Allah knows best. At the end of the day, we don't know. Uh, so that, in a nutshell, is where those conversations come from. And we'll, we'll see some of this come back up in the story. So back to the story, where we left off. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's another hadith that some that some use. Um, the response would be that it's am uh, maqsus. So am maqsus is a general statement. So the statement is general, but it's qualified by something else. And there's lots of those in the Quran and the Sunnah. For example. Allah Ta'ala talks about Ad and Thamud. They were destroyed, right? Allah Ta'ala says, uh, Everything was destroyed. Was everything destroyed? Because Kulla Shay means everything. So that's a general statement, but it's qualified. Qualified by what? By Aqal. Like you know that it wasn't everything, you know it was them in particular, right? Sometimes you have something qualified uh, rationally or it's qualified by another, another ayah or another hadith, right? There's different qualifiers, mukhasisat al-umum. Um, like, there's lots of these. So that would be a general statement that's qualified by, uh, you know, the people within the community, you know, the people within, and Allah knows best, I, I don't recall the exact response they gave. Imam al-Alusi, seems by far to be the most elaborate, uh, the, the, the one scholar who elaborated on this the most in his tafsir. Uh, he presents the arguments of those who said that Khidr is dead. And you read it, you think it's his position. Like it goes on for pages. And then he responds to every single argument very, very forcefully. And you realize, oh, okay, yeah, there's... There's an argument on both sides. Allah knows best. So he, Musa alayhi salam is here. He meets Khidr. He asks him if he gives permission to 
follow him so that he can learn some of the guidance that he has, the rushd. And with great adab, he asks this, this question. And Khidr replies, saying, قَالَ إِنَّكَ لَن تَسْتَطِيعَ مَعِيَ صَبْرًا وَكَيْفَ تَصْبِرُ عَلَى مَا لَمْ تُحِطْ بِهِ خُبْرًا He says, you will not be able to have patience with me. And how could you have patience with that which your knowledge does not encompass? So, Khidr immediately, you know, no, he doesn't say no. He just says, you won't be able to have patience with me. So why did he respond that way? Some of the scholars, like Ibn Ajiba, say that Khidr said to Musa, you will not be able to have patience with me because he knows that Musa is a Rasul. He is a messenger from Allah Ta'ala who receives revelation, who has a sharia, a law to uphold. Allah has informed Khidr of certain hidden matters and he knows that Musa السلام, is a messenger with a sharia. So Khidr knows from that inspiration that he will need to do certain things, but that Musa will be unable to tolerate them because those things will outwardly go against his sharia. Right, the ulama are very careful to note this, that when Musa السلام, objected, he had to object. He had to object because he is under the command of Allah to uphold this particular sharia that he revealed to him. And in that sharia, the actions of Khidr, judged from the outward, which is the standard of measure for these things, these actions are not tolerable. It, would have not, it wouldn't have been permissible for Musa to ignore the sharia that was given to him and not say anything about these matters. But at this time, still in the story, he doesn't know what he's going to experience. He's not thinking that there are things that will go against the sharia Allah gave him. He's not sure what they're going to be. So Khidr, he knows that he's a Rasul, and he knows that Allah has inspired him with certain things that Musa won't be able to tolerate. So he says, you won't be able to have patience with me. He knows ahead of time. So this part indicates that Khidr was not following the sharia of Musa salam. As Muslims, we only have one sharia, the sharia of Sayyidina Muhammad wasallam. And unlike the previous prophets and their shara'i', their laws, the Sharia of the Prophet Muhammad is Am, it's universal, and it abrogates all of the previous Sharia. But in that time, you have this Prophet with a Sharia, and it's possible that there are other Prophets on earth in different regions with different laws, and they may differ in certain respects. Like we recognize that there are certain aspects of the Sharia of Bani Israel that no longer apply to us. And, and 
things that were halal for them that are haram for us. Things that were haram for them are halal for us. Right? Prostrating to someone out of honor and respect. That was allowed for Yusuf and his people among Bani Israel. Not allowed for us. Drinking alcohol, wine, permitted for some, forbidden in our sharia. Right? So there's these, discrep- these details. So this indicates Khidr wasn't following the sharia of Musa. And it's possible that there may have been different prophets with different laws. We don't know. So Musa was obliged to object. And Khidr explains why Musa won't be able to have patience. He says... And how can you have patience with that which your knowledge does not encompass? Means, meaning, I have been tasked with something, a hidden affair, and you have no knowledge of it. It's like saying, can you do X, Y, Z? And you raise your hand, yes, I can do X, Y, Z. And I say to you, how can you know that you're able to do XYZ if you don't know what XYZ is. It's like saying, can you eat what is behind door number three? And you say, yes, I can eat what is behind door number three. How do you know you can do that? You don't know what's behind door number three. I could open door number three and it's a scorpion. You're going to eat that? Right? So Musa believes that he can be patient. Khidr is saying, you won't be able to have patience with me. And how can you have patience regarding something your knowledge does not encompass? Now Musa salam insists that he'll be patient. In the next verse Allah says, قَالَ سَتَجِدُنِي إِن شَاءَ اللَّهُ صَابِرًا وَلَا أَعْصِي لَكَ أَمْرًا He said, you'll find me Insha'Allah, patient, and I will not disobey your command. Right? So notice here how Musa is saying, Insha'Allah. He's not being overconfident. He's not being overconfident in thinking that he'll be patient. He says, Insha'Allah, you'll find me patient, and I won't disobey. So in this verse, notice that. Musa salam is actually mentioning two things, not one. He's not just saying, I'll be patient. He's saying, Insha'Allah, you'll find that I'm patient and I won't go against what you command. So, two things going on. Now, he says, Insha'Allah, is Insha'Allah linked to both of these or just one? Think about it. Qala, he said, سَتَجِدُونِي إِنْشَاءَ اللَّهُ صَابِرًا وَلَا أَعْصِي لَكَ أَمْرًا It seems that he's saying, Insha'Allah, I'll be patient. And the wow here is istinaf, you know. And you, you, you'll find that I won't disobey you. So he links his patience to the will of Allah. You'll find me, Insha'Allah, patient. Hmm? 
as he's starting a new phrase. Yeah. I mean, you could read it that way, right? You, you, you could read it as him saying, Inshallah, I'll be patient. And Inshallah, I won't disobey. But ulama mentioned that the Inshallah is linked to patience and isn't necessarily linked to saying, I won't disobey. Because did he disobey? Well, yeah. yeah he asked questions. So, here's the question. Why is this important? This seems a little technical, right? Uh, why is this important? Because was he patient and was he obedient? Now, he said, inshallah, I'll be patient. But was he patient? He wasn't. He, he wasn't, right? Uh, did he listen? Did he not? Did he not disobey? Well, he asked the questions, right? And and Khidr said, "Don't ask questions." So he disobeyed that. Why is this important? It's important because the Prophet wasallam spoke about the story of Khidr and Musa, and he said, "May Allah have mercy on Musa, if only he had been patient." So this indicates that he wasn't patient, and he didn't obey when Khidr said not to ask about the interpretation, right? So when he says, inshallah, it's conditional. Like, have you ever said inshallah to something and it doesn't work out? Like, we all have, right? And we mean the real inshallah, you know, not the, you know, the kid says, mommy, can I have an ice cream? And the mother says, inshallah, and the kid thinks that means no. Right? It means the real insha'Allah. You link your action to the will of Allah, the Mashia of Allah. I will do this, insha'Allah, if Allah wills. And if Allah doesn't will, am I going to do it? It's not going to happen. So he sincerely says, insha'Allah, I'll be patient. But was Allah's will linked to that? No. The, you know, we talked about that, naqidah. Yeah, the ta'alluq al-irada, the linkage of Allah's irada to mumkinat. Well, this is a mumkin, being patient or not being patient. Both are mumkin. Was Allah's will linked to patience here, Musa's patience? No, he wasn't patient. So he says, inshallah, he's not wrong for saying that, even if he wasn't patient, because Allah Ta'ala willed something else, and Musa intended to be patient but he didn't know what he's going to experience. So Musa السلام, wasn't wrong. Uh, one of the ulama of, of Spain, of Andalus, Ibn Banna, he says, an oath is only binding according to one's capacity and upholding what has been sworn is only in that which does not contradict the sharia and there's no obedience to creation and disobedience to the creator. And Musa السلام, did adhere to these norms. So when he saw something that was inappropriate, he spoke about it. Right? If you say, I, I promise you, I will, you tell your child, I promise you, I will take you to that gathering. 
Do you have to keep your commitment if you find out the gathering is full of evil? No. Just because you made a promise doesn't mean that it's going to be carried out if there are other things that occur, if there are other things that prevent you from upholding it, such as violations, things that contradict Sharia and stuff like that. That doesn't mean you're breaking your promise in, in a negative way. It means you now have a manner, some, in, some uh, impediment, something preventing you from fulfilling that agreement. So what we see here, if you go to the initial, this is that meeting between Khidr and Musa and their agreement before they set out. We see how this plays out. Musa salam says, Satajiduni insha'Allah sabiran I'll be patient. You'll find that I'm patient and I won't disobey. He goes on the journey. We know there's the incident of the ship. Musa salam objects. Khidr salam reminds him of the agreement they made. What was Musa's response? In the first case, he said, I forgot. I forgot. So that wasn't even an intentional breaking. It's just he has to say something and he even forgot the initial thing. Second time in the incident of the boy, he objects. Khidr reminds him. And then Musa reiterates the promise, but with an added condition, right? That if I do it again, we'll part ways. So the third time, it was deliberate. So the first one, it was forgetting. Second time, he did it with a condition. Third, it was a deliberate, and then they parted ways, right? Khidr made a condition for keeping company with him that he submits to whatever he sees. That he doesn't object and ask questions about whatever he sees. That was the condition he gave. And that's why he said, قَالَ فَإِنِ اتَّبَعْتَنِي فَلَا تَسْأَلْنِي عَنْ شَيْءٍ حَتَّى أُحْدِثَ لَكَ مِنْهُ ذِكْرًا If you follow me, don't ask me anything about it until I first make mention of it to you. So he's saying to him, for any action of mine that you witness, whether or not you understand it, don't initiate the question to seek an understanding of its wisdom. Definitely don't argue with me about it until I first explain it to you and tell you the wisdom behind it. So by saying this, he's telling Musa that whatever he's doing, there is a hidden wisdom behind it. He's just not disclosing it until later. So Musa salam agreed to this, but he's not aware of what he's going to see. And he has a sharia to uphold. So uh, in our next class, we'll look at each of those incidents, what happened, why Musa objected, and we get through the, to the rest of the story, and we look at some issues related to it. This is important uh, on a number of levels. Uh, I don't want to go into them now because That'll be for the next class. But it's important that we understand this story and what it means, not just as a historical uh, curiosity, but as something that is relevant to us. Like, what does the story of Musa and Khidr teach us? How is that story 
a means of protection in times of fitna at the end of time. Right? Those are things we need to explore once we get through the story and we wrap everything up, inshallah. So I thought I would cover this in two sessions, but talking about whether he's a wali or a nabi or alive or dead took a lot of time so that I'm glad we got that out of the way. We'll get now through the story in our next class. Allah wa Rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.